I love it. I love that facial expression too at the end. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ooh, what a note to end on. All right, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Before you kids get to go, I, I want to talk about a word, an idea, and I need your help because our adults aren't going to be able to learn this word well without your help. The word is responsibility. Responsibility. And so I'd like to know, maybe, maybe someone would be willing, back row, Titus, front row, Anya, you could, you could let me know. Um, what's a responsibility that you have at your house? What do you have at your house? Owen, is that a hand? Do I see a hand? No, you're just smoothing down the back of your hair. Okay, there we go. Is that Daniel? Oh, oh okay, all right. Jeremiah, bail me out here. <laughs> Mowing the lawn. Oh my goodness. How old are you, Jeremiah? 10. Wow. I'm not sure my dad trusted me to mow the lawn at 10. That's great. What a big responsibility at your house. Titus, at your house, what's your responsibility? To keep your room clean. That's right. You know, I took a poll. I actually asked a number of kids and a number of dads, and there are a few outliers like mow the lawn, rake the leaves. I was like, wow, great expectation at the White's household. So good job, David. You're keeping it, you're keeping it high. But the common theme that I heard from parents and kids was this, was clean up after yourself. It's something that your parents are teaching you continually. So thank you so much for helping me with that because you know what we're going to talk about? We're actually going to redefine faithfulness and responsibility according to this passage. And one thing that's going to help us is this. Responsibility sounds a whole lot like, like the word respond. And, and what I was hoping we would see was that at different households, the responsibility might be different. It might be different. Like, for instance, David White over there teaching his son to mow the lawn earlier than anybody else. Getting it done. Way to go. Way to go. Great expectations. And you kids, what's great about you kids is you, you rise to the occasion. Parents teach you to do things, and you rise to the occasion, and you do them. And they might be different from one household to another. And that's not good or bad necessarily, but your parents are teaching you specific things. Okay, now older kids, you can be dismissed up to fifth grade to your classes. Thank you so much for helping us out. Cool. Enjoy. Have a great class and be responsible in your, in your class with your teachers. Responsibility. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, there's a direct responsibility, right, with each child to their specific parents. And, and while I got a very common answer, there are probably different expectations at, at, at different houses, right? Um, so you better be ready to mow the lawn, you know, if David White is your dad. But, but essentially it's this. Responsibility is responding to, for a kid, responding to your parent. And it's going to be different for the different values and maybe some different priorities in families' households. We're going to get into the priorities of one master's household. We're going to ask the question, were they known or were they not known? And how responsible was one servant versus another? Now here's the thing. D.A. Carson says this. He's a, he's a Bible teacher at Trinity Evangelical and he says this, we cannot look at the story of the talents through Western eyes. 
And, and, and you have to know a couple ways that people have misused this passage. To either justify capitalism or to justify labor unions. And we don't do that at all. There is one point to this passage. And what we're going to have to do is envision ourselves as, as someone who lived in Palestine, first century, walking around with Jesus. And, and here's what we need to know, that the Bible talks about wealth, and the Jewish people of the first century knew wealth in a couple of different ways, that it was a good thing to manage your business, your family, your career pursuit with godly character in such a way that it was good that you increased. Okay, that is something that we do need to know, culturally speaking, that there is this expectation of if I am faithful with what I have, my time, my energy, my strength, my material, my supply, my money, that I will be entrusted to steward more. And whether that was you as an individual or whether it was you working for someone, that was a concept that people understood. That, that you'd be a terrible master if, if, if you had a servant that just lost things all the time or they were lazy. You wouldn't entrust them with more and more, right? There was an idea of wealth or earthly success being a good thing. Now here's what we need to also say. That wealth and earthly success today is a good thing that we should manage. And that God expects us to manage that with good, godly character. But it does not determine, it does not determine our spiritual well-being. I'm not going to pray or claim wealth over you today. I hope you didn't come in expecting that. In fact, I know that you didn't. If you know us, our church, or if you know God's word, it does not determine our spiritual well-being, how much we have today. And yet there was a category of thinking that if you are responsible and faithful, that generally speaking, proverbially speaking, that that will grow. And in Jesus' day, we have to understand that people grew wealth in good godly ways, but there were also people who grew wealth or captured wealth by exploiting people. It was very clear. It even, it happens today sometimes as well. Um, but we have to understand that there are two categories here. So don't look at this through Western eyes. Let's look at this through a first century Jewish person's eyes. So look at the story with me. I'm going to paraphrase and help us to, to really grasp what's going on. A man, here's the first thing we see, a man who is wealthy himself, entrusts his money to employees, to his employees. Now, he's got larger amounts that he entrusts, and he'd got, he's got smaller amounts. But here's what we need to understand, this parable of the talents. What is a talent worth today? It's worth somewhere between $300,000 and $600,000. It's no small sum of money. This man was wealthy. Was that, was that amazing? Who was that back there? David? I'm pretty sure that was you. I, just, I knew that was you. Yes, it, it's a considerable amount of money. And so we're talking about somewhere between $300,000 a piece to $3 million at most a piece that he gave to his servants. Now here's the key word. He entrusts his money to them. It's his money. It's not their money. But he gives it to them, not as a gift, but he gives it to them as servants to him, to his estate. 
It's not a gift at Christmas. This is a gift that comes with a responsibility. He entrusts the money. I think there's a, there's a legal word that we talk about today, a fiduciary. A fiduciary it doesn't quite grasp all of this, but, but it does grasp some of this. If you have a fiduciary that works for you, it means that they have your best interest in mind. Even when you don't have your best interest in mind, your fiduciary is legally responsible to have your best interest in mind. And so, and so let's say I have a fiduciary and, and, uh, and I say, I want to clear out my retirement account. Um, I, I want every penny in there because I am headed to Vegas. I'm headed to Vegas. It's my fiduciary's responsibility to say, Gabe, that is nuts and that is the worst move and you should not do that. Even if I ended up doing that, they have a responsibility to tell me that that is terrible, it's horrible. I shouldn't do that because it's not in my best interest. They know it and so they speak into that even when I don't know it. But there's a word, a less legal word, that I think describes the relationship between the master and the servants and it is one of loyalty. Loyalty. It was understood between a servant and a master. Loyalty. And that's why he entrusts these sums of money with his three servants. Now we look at the story and, and one gets five talents. And man, how, how unequal, how unfair. He gets five talents. But what does that man do? What does that servant do with the five talents? He turns it into five talents more. Five talents more. The other servant is given two talents, two talents, and what does he do? He turns it into two more talents. Those servants double the wealth of their master. And then the, ser- the third servant, who's the contrasting servant, what does he do with the one talent that he has? Goes out into a field, he digs a hole, and he buries the one talent. It's, this is like $300,000 or $600,000. Now, here's what you need to understand. <laughs> um, it's not like this is a bad idea. <laughs> I know you're like, yeah, this is so dumb. But the, if people wanted to save or preserve something, oftentimes you didn't take it to a, a bank or a money lender. If you just wanted to save it and preserve it for what it was, you did this. You went and found a spot You hid the money so that no one else could get it. You buried it. That was the savings plan. It's much like the savings plan today. If you go down to Chase Bank and open up a savings account with them and you leave it in there for a year or two, $600,000, it's going to be about as good as digging a hole and putting your money in it. Right? I mean, terrible interest rates these days. And I'm not going to go into that, nor do I understand that. Exactly. Maybe you could explain that to me afterwards. Um, But a terrible rate of return. But that's essentially what this man's idea is. I'm going to preserve the money. I'm not going to grow it. Preserve it, but not grow it. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? So the master leaves. He's left. And he's gone for a long while. We don't know how long, uh, but Jesus tells us, but it's a long while. It's a long while. And he, he returns. It could be months. It could be even be a few years that he's gone. 
And the big question that everyone is anticipating as they hear the different business plans of the three servants is, how is the master going to respond? Because we don't know how long he's gone. And I think that's even some of the suspense of the story and the tension of we don't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. He's teaching his disciples about his return, right? That's our context. How is this master going to judge his servants? And so what does he do? First, we see him talk about the first two servants. He honors them. He honors them. Why? For their faithfulness and understanding of their boss's desire. Their faithfulness and understanding of their boss's desire. And what comes of this, the master tells them that their opportunity for faithfulness has grown as well. They are entrusted with more. And secondly, because of the joy of the master grows. The master delights in these servants, and they are given more. They're given more. Listen to these words. I want to read verse 21 of Matthew 25. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The master repeats the same thing for the servant who turned two talents into four. Right? Two talents into four. Enter into the joy of your master. The master is very pleased I mean, if, if this was your place of work, I mean, the awards are being handed out. People are being recognized. They're being appreciated. Bonuses are given out. Someone's being sent on a, a special vacation trip by their company. Why? Because you delighted the master. You brought him joy as you did exactly what he wanted while he was away. But this in particular is highlighted that the master, in his joy, gives these faithful servants more responsibility. More responsibility. But we get quite the contrast right here. There's actually condemnation in this passage. So you get great, great affirmation right here of faithful, responsible servants, but you also see the condemnation of unfaithfulness to the boss's desire. Look at verse 24 with me. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be a hard man. Think about this. What does he mean by you're a hard man? Like you're harsh? It may be. I mean, I saw Ruling's expression, too, after she was done reading, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ugh. This guy does sound like a, a hard person. But what's great is in the next sentence, we, we understand how hard he is. Reaping where you do not sow. You're not planting the seed, but you're expecting to pick the fruit. <laughs> Gathering where you scattered no seed. You expected something from work that you did not personally do. And so, so how does this servant respond to the hard man? Like the first two servants, he, he goes out there, he hustles so hard. I'm going to make the most of this one talent. I'm going I'm to do something special. 
I'm going to bring my master joy. I'm going to work hard. I don't know when he's coming back, but, but I'm going to do something with what he's given me. No, verse 25, so I was afraid. I knew your character. You wanted something from this, and so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. I know, uh, like, we want to laugh at that. You think you hid it in the ground? <laughs> you know, we talk about hiding money in a mattress, right? I don't trust the bank, so I put it somewhere secure. That's essentially what he's doing right here. I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. You know that about me. Isn't that so interesting? The master highlights. He doesn't, he doesn't defend himself. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, Oh, I'm really not a harsh manager. I'm not a harsh master. He says, No, I am. And I expected you to do something with that talent. You knew that I wanted fruit from your labors with my money. The master leans in to the description that the servant gives of his master. He says, you're absolutely right. You understood my character. There's nothing wrong with that. You were right on. But verse 27, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Give it to him who has ten talents. The man knew that the master was hard. He knew the character of the master. Now the point of the story is not that this is good or bad. This is not a defensive capitalism, right? This is not, this is, it's not a good or bad statement. It's all moral. But the servant knew who the master was. He knew his expectations. He knew his desires. That the master wanted him to use it. And yeah, that, might, that meant a couple of things. That meant that I'm going to have to find, find something. I'm going to have to have to do work to find an investment that's going to earn a return for my master. It means I can't sit on the couch. It also means that I have to be discerning. I probably shouldn't go to Vegas with my talent. It's really not mine, right? It's my master's. I need something that's going to have a reasonable return on it. Yeah, it's going to have some risk in it, but a reasonable return because that's what my master expects. He expects me to go to do that work to keep whoever I invest it with accountable to that return. But what's this guy's response? It's fear. I just dreaded, I dreaded what could happen if I did this or the work that it would take or maybe I wouldn't benefit. I mean, I'm doing this for you and so you're going to benefit but not me. He was afraid. I think um, I got a sense in this passage um, that this guy is whining. He's whining about his boss. Can we identify with that? Man, my boss's expectations are unreasonable. But right here, he gets caught. He gets caught in the middle. I, I was whining and complaining about my boss's expectations 
so I didn't do the work. And it was fine, and it was okay for a while. Whatever that time was, whether it was a few months or whether it was seven years, it was fine. But it wasn't fine on this day. Why wasn't it fine on this day? Because the master returned. The master returned, and the servant is accountable to the master. And the master brings the consequences. And here's the one point of the message. Look at verse 29. For to everyone who has been given, uh, for to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, now here's what I don't want you to get caught up on. This is a fictional story, but it's a very real response. This is the response that Jesus' listeners and what you and I should be attentive to is that we do not want to hear words any kind of words like this from our boss, from our manager, from anybody who's an authority over us that we're responsible to. We don't want to hear any words near this, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a literal description of hell right here in this passage. But Jesus is saying, there was a consequence for this third servant, knowing the character of his master, and not responding accordingly. Now, here's the question I didn't ask the kids this morning. You know, what are you responsible for in your house? What's the consequence if you don't do that? What is it? You know, maybe Jeremiah's not getting his allowance, or uh, maybe he just gets away with it. I don't know. I'll come and mow your lawn, David, you know. You let me know how much he makes, and I'll, I'll think about it. What's the consequence? If our kids don't, don't pick things up, then, then sometimes that means we take something that's a joy away. There normally isn't weeping and gnashing of teeth. Normally isn't weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? But there is a consequence. There is some kind of consequence. Now, there's a word that comes to mind. It's this, insubordination. We define insubordination as directly disobeying an order, a command. That's what we don't have in this parable. But do you know what type of insubordination this servant shows? He admits it. He confesses it. And the master calls him out on it. You knew about me. I wanted you to steward my things well. You knew that. You whined about it, but you knew my character. And you acted while I was gone in disregard to my character. It's why you and I are like, man, this guy's really harsh. You know, what, what a pig, right? He, he expects this from his servant so much to gather where he hasn't sown But he says, you knew my character. You knew who I was. You knew my identity. But you were, and here's his judgment, you were wicked and lazy. You didn't do anything, and you disregarded who I was. 
Uh, Dr. Alford says this uh, about this passage. He says, the foolish virgins that we talked about last week, they failed from thinking their part too easy. Oh, I'll have enough oil. No big deal. But right here, the wicked servant fails from thinking that his task is too hard. It's too hard. Why would I do that? It's just too hard. The standard's too high. He expects too much. I just can't do that. Now, you might be asking yourself right now, is God like my manager? He has unreasonable expectations? And no, no, that's not Jesus' point. Not at all. But this is Jesus' point, that his grace never condones our irresponsibility. His grace never condones our irresponsibility. It's too hard, and so I'm going to shirk that responsibility. No matter how little or how much you have, Notice how this, this proverb is oftentimes put in the negative. Even the little that you have that you're unfaithful with is going to be taken away. I want to put it in the positive because this parable is put in the positive. Uh, the negative is a warning for us. Don't be this servant. Just like don't be those five bridesmaids that thought, oh, I'll have enough oil. Don't be this guy who said, I can whine and complain I can disregard my master's expectations because they are hard, after all. If I took a poll, people would think he's unreasonable. And so I can get away with shirking my responsibility. Jesus' grace never condones shirking our responsibility, but faithfully serving Jesus' kingdom with what he gives while he is gone always results in entering his joy. Let me say that again. Here is the point stated positively. Faithfully serving Jesus' kingdom with what he gives while he is gone always results in entering his joy. Serving him with what he's given us while he is away. That is the faithful response that Jesus is teaching us in this parable. And so I've got, I've got a number of application questions. I've got five Five of them. You ready for this? The first is this. Can we expect our God to be pleased with our living in ignorance of him? Grace never condones irresponsibility. So it might look like this. God, I know you love generosity, but I am holding on to my things for my own purpose, for my own use. Or God, I know you're compassionate, but I'm not even going to think about meeting that person's need in my community group. Here's the gospel truth. It's this. Jesus died on the cross so that we can abandon completely and utterly our ignorance of God and live in full knowledge of who he is and that he will be good to us. The gospel does not say, and don't take from this parable, man, I've just got to work harder. The gospel says this, that Jesus died on the cross so that like the servant, we would not have to live in fear of our God and that we can abandon ignorance of God that we live in for full knowledge. This is a shift from walking in darkness to walking in light in fellowship, in relationship with God, believing that he is good to us. 1 Peter 1, 13 and 14, which 
we looked at this summer, says this. It was fresh on my mind. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Grace has brought us a full relational picture of Jesus and the implication of grace bringing us into a relationship with Jesus means that I have a responsibility to reflect who he is in his holiness. I can't live in ignorance of God. His grace is too good to me. I'm called to faithfulness. Faithfulness. Okay, Buddhism. You know a little bit about, about, about Buddhism. Uh, trying to achieve nirvana. Trying to achieve an enlightenment which means I have to work really hard at meditation, being really good. I've got to work on my righteousness in order to reach this point in the future of enlightenment. And the gospel says, no, Jesus brings you to that point. Jesus brings you into the light. The Christian faith is then about reflecting that light, living into that light, not trying to earn that light. It's a gift given to us. It's all about how do I steward that light? And so essentially this parable is saying, you know, if, if I've been given light and, and I live in a world of darkness, Jesus is okay if I keep that light off. This parable says, no, if Jesus gives you the light of the gospel, relational light with him, he expects that we will shine it, shine it. Secondly, the sufficient grace of Jesus compels us to live in faithful response to God. Jesus' faithfulness to accomplish the grace that you and I enjoy as Christians that he would die atoning for our sins, a substitute embracing and soaking up the wrath that we deserve so that we would never experience what God thinks about sin and only experiencing his goodness. How Jesus goes about that influences the kind of faithfulness that we show in reciprocation as a fruit of his grace. When we see Jesus' faithfulness, we love faithfulness. I mean, we see its high value. Look at, look at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, says this. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, God the Father, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, a steward, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, okay, Moses was faithful, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. When the Father entrusts Jesus with his mission I want you to go remove the curse of sin and disobedience and ignorance of me. I want you to remove it completely. Finish that work. 
And when Jesus comes and accomplishes that work of redemption by taking the curse on himself, which is a hard thing, a thing that we would not expect even within the Trinity, that the Father would ask the Son to accomplish. And we know that Jesus doesn't whine or complain. He doesn't say, Father, this is unreasonable. But he takes up that destiny, that cup, and he walks it out. That means that you and I cannot whine about the good and glorious character of God. That we don't make excuses for his perfect righteousness. Or that he is a just God who, who never lies you know, even to cover over and, and help someone. I mean, I, I remember my wife really helped me out with this one. I remember as a youth pastor, I went to, uh, went to um, I can't even remember, some kind of performance. And one of the girls in our youth group was a baton twirler. And there she is twirling the baton. Do you remember this? And, uh, and there she is up on stage. And I mean, they're doing great, sweet things. I'm like, look at that talent up there on that stage. And then she throws her baton up, and it crashes on the stage. I mean, it just falls. And everybody could hear it. I mean, it was just it was so obvious. And, and you know, we felt, felt really bad. And then afterwards, we're talking with her and saying hi, and it's all great. And then she brings it up. And I'm like, oh, no. I was hoping she wouldn't bring that up. And so what did I do? I lied. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, I noticed it. And she looked at me like, you didn't notice that? You weren't watching, you know? You weren't paying attention. And then afterwards, my wife and I had a great conversation. It was really good. Wow, that was wrong. Just threw that. What was I doing? Oh, I didn't want to make her feel uncomfortable. I wanted, many, I wanted to make her feel better. Yeah, God never does that. He never accepts a lie, only the truth, even when it's difficult. You and I don't make excuses for the high standard of God and his holiness, that he's completely other. We don't bring God down to our level. We embrace the redemption that Jesus brings when he takes on flesh, is faithful and shows no laziness in accomplishing his father's plan. All right, so I wanted to redefine faithfulness. It's always good to define these good words like faithfulness, great words, in the context of the passage. And right here, it's very clear that faithfulness and responsibility is this. To Jesus, in his words, is acting in his, in his kingdom's best interest. It's a fiduciary responsibility that you and I as stewards get to think about what is it? What do I need to do in my neighborhood that is in Jesus' best interest? You know, it's so easy for me to think about in this church, what do I feel like? But asking the good and faithful question as a steward, as a part of this community, what's in Jesus' best interest that I say and do? That needs to be our thought. That needs to be our priority as a fiduciary of Jesus' kingdom, doing what represents and reflects him in his kingdom clearest. Through the final three, I'm gonna run through it. Faithfulness is not excuses. What did this guy do? Wow, he had excuses. Your standard's too high, master. I can't follow it. I can't follow it. 
You know, I'm pretty good at making excuses. I don't know about you, right? Have you ever rehearsed an excuse? Oh, it's reasonable that I didn't do this because and we're like, we're like, tell it to ourselves, right? And maybe you're a manager, you're like, yeah, I know excuses very well. I hear them all the time. Here's, here's the theological question. What kind of excuses will God tolerate for unfaithfulness? Faithfulness, not excuses. Secondly, faithfulness in all things, in all things. You see in the proverb this little and big it's not, it's not a one-to-one application, right? You might be sitting there asking, well, why didn't God give me the $600,000? But really, the question of application is not that. The question of application is this, how do I be faithful with whatever God gives me to serve him with? How do I be faithful with what he has given me right here, right now? Now, I think we get caught up on numbers. They can be super distracting. Why didn't, give, why didn't God give me X amount of people in my community group or in my Bible study? My joy will be in how many people come and not in experiencing God, in serving, in leading, in edifying the people that do come. You know, it could, it could steal our joy if we let the numbers distract us. But the story right here is about the character of God and how our faithfulness ought to reflect it. It is not in numbers. It is in faithfulness. And that is much harder to quantify. Faithfulness in our hearts, in our lives. But you know it and you see it. Lastly, faithfulness to be commended. The day is coming where everything will be revealed. And we live in the time where our faithfulness to Jesus might not seem valuable to a number of different people, but it is valuable to Jesus. He loves it. It reflects him. And so you, as you lean into faithfulness that God creates in us, you do it with a fervor and zeal that you long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You and I live for the commendation. We should. We ought to. It's a good thing. It's not bad. It's encouraged right here by Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to posture ourselves. Not for numbers, not for popularity, not for success by any world measure, but by faithfulness that begins in our heart, is lived out in our character. And God, that's a work that you can do. And we know that you can do it because we see the radical faithfulness of Jesus to listen and obey no matter what. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us to discern, and maybe there was, a, maybe there was something that I said that people feel like, oh, I've just got to get back on the Christianity treadmill and do better. And God, I pray that first and foremost, we would hear that Jesus is faithful, it's done. Unplug the treadmill. We are accepted by you on the grace of Jesus. Praise the Lord. 
And your grace in us is going to cultivate and create a fruit of faithfulness that says, I will not live in ignorance of God anymore. I will live in reflection. I will live for his glory. God, I pray that you do that in us as individuals, in us as a church. God, I pray that you would help us, particularly the leadership in this church, as we, as we structure ministries, I pray that it would set us up to use and be faithful to our greatest resource, your people indwelt by your spirit. And God, I pray that we would structure ministry in such a way that we can unleash faithful people to make much of you in this community. And so God, I pray that you would inspire us and give us vision for what that looks like. I pray that you would bring the right people that maybe have something on their heart or their mind and, and, and that they're thinking about, a way that we can make much of you and they haven't spoken up, they haven't raised their hand and said, I'm gonna talk to Pastor Kyle or Roger or Gabe about this. God, I pray that you would help us, give them that courage and confidence, help us to discern the, the way of faithfulness as a church forward. God, we love you and we expect your grace and that's why we pray such bold prayers. It's in your son's faithful name that I pray, amen.